And now, The Federal Drive with Tom Temin. Hello, and thanks for joining us on this Tuesday, May 30th, 2023, seven minutes past the hour. I'm Tom Temin. Our producers are Eric White and Peter Masurlian. Our digital editors, Daisy Thornton and Darris Lauderdale. Coming up in this hour of The Federal Drive, one reason the Postal Service has a long-term pension problem. Plus, new ideas for updating a very old scorecard agencies roll their eyes at. Those stories much more ahead during this hour of The Federal Drive. But first, the Veterans Affairs Department plans to bring more of its employees back into the office more often. Its new return-to-office plans start with the National Capital Region in early fall. That's after some nudging from the Biden administration, calling for much of the federal workforce to show up for work in person more often. Federal News Network's Jory Heckman has more. Jory, is this the end of telework for VA, or what are they actually asking for here? Well, it's definitely not the end of telework for VA, but it is a change in their day-to-day reality in terms of those workplace flexibilities. What they're going to expect in the fall is about half and half. You know, any given pay period of two weeks, VA employees can expect to work remotely for about half of that pay period and be in the office the other half. What that really boils down to is a minimum standard of being in office five days every pay period. We heard from VA Secretary Dennis McDonough on this effort. This is something that he said was an important thing to strike a balance with the VA workforce about. And he said that this is the result of months of careful consideration of what VA employees could get done remotely and what is essential to get done in the office. A big part of this effort that we've been going through now for months has also been looking not just at what is the ratio of days in the office, days in flexible settings. We're looking at what are the attributes of a highly effective workforce? What is the data that affirms that highly effective workforce? So we'll be building that between now and the fall. Well, he got the OMB memo, that's for sure. And who is exactly impacted by this? Because the medical staff has been largely, of course, on duty in the hospitals, mostly because they have to be. Yeah, that's an important thing to point out here. The healthcare workforce for VA overwhelmingly has to be in person. And McDonough was quick to point out that they've been in person throughout the entirety of the COVID-19 pandemic. So this really impacts the more white collar office worker type crowd. People in policy, people in Veterans Benefits Administration and cemetery, I guess, for that matter. Yeah, those types of people. And he mentioned, you know, the effectiveness of the workforce. That sounds like a nice word for productivity. And is this something they're going to be measuring? Well, this is something they're keeping a careful eye on. There's a couple of data elements they have to keep an eye on as part of uh, what this return to office is going to look like. The VBA, for example, is more productive now and is breaking year-after-year records in terms of productivity. They have to to keep up with the cert with the surge in demand under the PACT Act, the toxic exposure legislation that was signed into law last year. And the workplace flexibilities is just one variable in play here. And so McDonough says that as VBA employees and the rest of the VA workforce do this more in office work return, that they're going to keep an eye on things and make sure that the the productivity does not slip. That when we're performing at this high level in the field, and we can demonstrate productivity like this, and we are seeing returns like we are seeing on the PACT Act, for example, uh, we're going to defend their right to be able to continue to work in those more flexible settings. Right, but less flexible than it has been up until now. Yeah, that's less flexible than it has been up until now. 
Because some people have been teleworking nearly full time from reports we've gotten. Some people are there a couple days a week, but this is five out of 10 days. So that's averages more than a couple of days a week. Right, right. And this is something that we're probably going to see play out throughout the rest of the federal workforce. You mentioned that OMB memo. Uh, This is not happening in a vacuum here. This is a call from the top of the Biden administration to see more federal workers across government do this exact same thing. And I thought everyone was ignoring that memo, but, but I guess not. Now, VA has to take steps, doesn't it, to get the offices ready? I mean, there's dead plants everywhere and dust. I mean, they've got to get some work done here in order for people to get back? Oh, yeah. You know, McDonough pointed out in his memo that it was a major undertaking for the VA workforce to adopt telework under a mandatory environment in 2020. And it's kind of the same process in reverse here. They are, case in point, freezing a plan that had been in place to reduce office space because the workforce has grown and the office space has largely remained static. And so just making sure everyone has a place to be in the office when they return to the office is one part of things. They also have to iron this out with the federal employee unions, make sure that that this gels with the collective bargaining agreements that are in place there, and just generally making sure that all of the things that need to be ironed out are, in fact, taken care of. Now, Veterans Affairs has the largest workforce of any civilian agency. They're almost twice as big as Homeland Security. And they also have the largest number of people in bargaining units, mostly American Federation of Government Employees. AFGE has come out pretty strongly in terms of maximum flexibilities, maximum telework, and they have cited the government's own statements that productivity has shot through the roof since the advent of the pandemic. So what about employees? What does VA do? Did McDonough address what he's hearing from employees on this? Yeah, well, a couple of points there. AFGE did get advance notice of this uh, this policy happening. Uh, we have not yet heard from AFGE on their reaction to this. But McDonough wants to make sure that employees have a clear channel of communications here. Case in point, he told employees that about once a week, he will be in the VA cafeteria uh, having lunch and the employees are invited to walk up to him, let him know what they think about this. And he did hear from employees last week about this. I did hear some pushback at lunch. My guess is I'm going to hear pushback on my email. And that's really good. I want to be a part of an agency that has a free flow of information from our employees. Well, at least with email, you won't get mashed potatoes dumped on your head, but you'll still get the feedback. And this begins when, Jory? When does this all start to take place? So we don't yet have a definitive date of when this goes into effect. Early fall is what's being targeted here. I imagine we'll have that date in place once the things like that communication with the unions is concluded. But the national capital region is the place where it's going to start first. Yeah, that's an important distinction here. This policy right now only affects the national capital region employees, people within the greater D.C. metro area. And the focus there is that McDonough says the headquarters employees should set an example for people in the field that, you know, that mothership type idea of VA, that there should be people who are talking with each other, coordinating with each other and setting that policy tone for a workforce that is, for the large part, outside of the Beltway. And as far as we can tell, by the way, since you go to those monthly press briefings that McDonough does give, those are in VA headquarters. I think I subbed for you one day last year or so and went in, had some fun being a reporter again and going to that theatrical setup room they have where McDonough gives the press conferences. Those have been in VA headquarters. So there have been people there 
to man those oh, and yeah. get those set up all along. Yeah. I mean, in the times that I've been there in person, which is almost all of them, uh, it is a very lively building at headquarters. There are people milling about. And so we're going to see that be even busier in the coming months. Yes. And I think people are more afraid of the traffic and the parking situation or the mobbed metros. If it ever gets mobbed again, it would be good for metro. I think Maybe that's what people detest more than being in the office with their colleagues itself. Well, you know, no one enjoys a commute, but that's something that we're going to see more of uh, play out in the fall. Well, instead of electric cars, what we need is teleportation. Federal News Network's Jory Heckman, thanks so much. Thanks, Tom. Be sure to check out all of his coverage at federalnewsnetwork.com. Still to come, new ideas for updating a very old scorecard agencies roll their eyes at. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. Deep in the weeds of agency management, you can find something called the FATARA Scorecard. FATARA stands for Federal Information Technology Acquisition Reform Act. It became law in 2015. And twice each year, agencies receive from Congress a scorecard on how they did managing their IT activities. Now a team under the IT Trade Group Act IAC has come up with a list of recommendations for revising the FATARA scorecard. Here with the whys and wherefores, former federal CIO Alan Baloudis. Alan, good to have you in the studio. Thank you. And the executive director of the Policy Center at MITRE Corporation and former GAOer, Dave Pounder. Dave, good to have you in. Great to be here, Tom. A little bit of background. This FATARA scorecard, where does it come from and do agencies really believe in it? Well, Tom, starting off, you know, FATARA was passed in December 2014. And following the passage of that law, there were scorecards provided initially in four areas associated with aspects of that law. So, for instance, areas like data center consolidation, where we consolidating centers and saving money. Uh, Originally, Congress started with four categories. It kind of ballooned now to about eight categories. But consistently, every six months for the last eight years, four congressional sessions, there's been a scorecard in place. And I will say early, there were great benefits to the scorecard in terms of cost savings, you know, going to more incremental development instead of, you know, big waterfall approaches. And what happened is from scorecards 8 through 15, there really weren't a lot of changes. So what ACT IAC decided to do, we had a great team that was led by Dave Wenegren, Richard Spires, Al and I were able to participate in that. But we had a lot of other ex-CIOs, a really top-notch group that recommended how we should evolve this scorecard sure. so that we could continue to focus on things that matter, cyber, cloud migration, workforce, those types of categories. And, Alan, do you get the sense that the scorecards actually affected agency activities, or was this one of those things where you can't fatten a pig by weighing it? Well, it's a troubled analogy, uh, but, yeah, I think it's made a considerable difference, and everybody, I think, agrees with that. CIO Council, OMB, GAO, members of the Hill, and, of course, there's been a revolving leadership on the Republican side, but I think it's time to evolve that card after eight years and 15 report cards. As we've advanced and accomplished, now we want to step up the ante a little bit and uh, advance the ball even further. Yeah, what has changed in the IT environment, do you think, that would prompt a change in what is measured and scored and reported on? Because you mentioned cloud, workforce, cybersecurity. Those are still very much 
extant. Yeah, those areas have always been around, Tom. But if you look at cyber, for instance, if you look at the current administration with their executive order, the zero trust strategy that's in place, now the national cybersecurity strategy, you know, we had metrics to measure cyber, but those metrics do need to change if we look at like the tenants of zero trust, multi-factor authentication, endpoint detection, those types of things. So again, when you look at what we're proposing here, there's one new category. There's a workforce category that has never been on the scorecard and we think it should be. And I know Alan has a lot of ideas about how that should evolve. The network category on EIS, we're proposing that that stays. And then there's six categories. We're By just, EIS, you mean the enterprise, yeah. Right. The it, contract from GSA the, the contract that about half GSA. the company, yeah. half government has actually bought into yet. Exactly. And that's why it was put on the scorecard to grade it so that we get more folks moving towards that government-wide contract. So that one we're proposing stays. And then the other six categories are really like an evolution of what's already there. So cyber was already there, and we're just proposing new metrics on cyber. And just briefly, the workforce issue then, what is uh, crucial there? Well, I think just a week or so ago, Tom, you had uh, Gene Dodaro, Comptroller General, head of GAO, on your show. And as you know, in the high-risk list, human capital planning and management has been on the list since the very inception. And now, as you look at the remaining issues on the list, half of them have human resources as a key component, program management, cybersecurity, et cetera. Now, if you came in to head a new company and they said, we have this longstanding problem for 20 years that's been our major issue, and it's the major contributor of half of our other big challenges, wouldn't you want to take that on. It's a difficult issue. The metrics have been a little hard to measure, but it's such a critical path matter, and it would drive so much success and progress in other areas if you were to succeed there. All of that argues for putting it on the top and making it a major priority. We're speaking with Alan Balutis. He's former federal CIO and man about the industry for many years after that. And with Dave Pounder, executive director of the Policy Center at MITRE Corporation. And you have worked up a prototype Fatara scorecard and actually tested it at two agencies. They wish to remain anonymous for this. But tell us more about that methodology. Yeah, so the key to the scorecard, Tom, is is the data available and does the methodology make sense? So what we did is we had two agencies that signed up, and those were really the two questions that we wanted to answer. Is the data available to apply our scoring methodology, and does the scoring methodology make sense? And to cut to the chase on what those two agencies told us, most of this data is readily available to provide a score, and they did uh, where they were able to self-score, so the methodology made sense. There were some tweaks they had that were very helpful that we plan on incorporating into the methodology that we currently have. And the other thing we're doing, too, in addition to piloting is, you know, we're running this past GAO, federal CIO's office, as well as congressional staff on the Hill to make sure that this all makes sense and this is where they want to go. And all of those have been receptive You didn't hatch this in secret and sort of plop it onto the world. They've all been involved, these different stakeholders, to use the modern parlance. Indeed. And I wanted to just ask one detail question of your recommendations. CIO authority, and that's an issue that has been bedeviling since there have been CIOs. I think there's been two or three laws, Alan, in in our history of following this. What do you mean there? How would you change that in relation to the scorecard? 
Well, as you know, Tom, one of the challenges from the very beginning after Klinger Cohen was enacted, Senator Cohen went off to become Secretary of Defense in the Clinton administration, and Congressman Klinger retired. So there was no one to actually follow up. There was a uh, mixed implementation of the act initially. And so CIOs never were granted some of the authorities that are essential to carry out that role, authority over the IT budget, authority over procurement, so you could see what's being acquired. And CIOs have struggled with that. So again, we view that as a critical path issue, giving them authorities, and then, of course, seeing that they actually use that authority, because we've seen recently a report from the Department of Veterans Affairs where they weren't reviewing many of the key IT procurements in the department. Both are essential, having the authority and using that authority to carry through the job. And Tom, specifically on that topic, if you look at the scorecard today, the CIO authority has one category that they use to evaluate it. Do they report to the agency head, as Alan said, that's required back to Klinger Cohen? Sure. And they get a plus or a minus on their grade. What we're proposing is there's three areas that we focus on. Do they report appropriately? Are they involved with the budgeting and spend process? And are they also involved with the procurement process? So you break that into like three categories. And we think to Alan's point that that's really where we need to focus to make sure they are involved with all those key areas. Yeah, to put the C in CIO, you might say. Correct. And Dave, another question, and Alan, you can jump in on this one also, and that is, and I'm asking based on your experience at GAO, where you would have looked at a agency or a program or some type of a federal initiative over time. And if the scorecard changes, does it matter that the scores may not be comparable over the long history of them, 15 and counting? Or is that really not so important and what really matters is what they're doing right now with what is current. To be honest, I don't think the actual grade or scores matter. Are we getting progress in terms of outcomes? So if you look at data center consolidation, we saved billions. Incremental development, we went to a more incremental approach over time. Do we need to get better cloud adoption plans in place and actually execution against those plans? Do we need to be in the cloud more? Yes. So that's one of the areas that we propose. Do we need to move our cyber approach more towards a zero trust approach that's currently required in policy coming out of OMB? Yes, we need to do those things. So really, the grades are there, but it's really the outcomes. And to be honest with you, what we're proposing on the evolution of the scorecards, right now everyone's getting a C or higher. And if you look collectively at everything the agencies have to do, workforce, cyber, cloud adoption, the legacy challenges we have, do we really think everyone is doing A's and B's in all these areas? Agencies themselves would probably tell you no. So I think this evolution where we look at new categories, push agencies to do things. And I will say, not that you want to give D's and F's, but when agencies got D's and F's, top management paid attention, and there was focus on these things. And you used the phrase, I think, report card when you started this interview, and you'd continue that analogy. As you advance in your performance, the curriculum gets a little tougher, the scoring gets a little more intense, and you step up the ante in terms of your progress. And that makes sense in this arena as well. Sure. Okay. One pre-final question, and that is, it sounds like you envision really for the long term a card that continuously changes to reflect changes in technology and 
reflect changes in the real challenges that the government is facing at a given moment? I think it should clearly change over time. You need to be fair to the agencies and give them a heads up. One of the things that the committee's done that I think has really been great is when they were going to change something, they would preview it, the scorecard prior. So agencies would really have almost a full year to know that it's coming. But as an example, like with the cyber categories that we proposed, this aligns with the current administration's policies, you know, patching, multi-factor authentication. But, for instance, like quantum cryptography is not in our methodology. Does that need to be down the road? Absolutely. That's a big deal. So this is always going to evolve over time, Tom. Technologies change and evolve, and of course, member interests change and evolve. We've had some consistency in membership on Democratic side with Congressman Connolly, but as you know, the Republican side, we've had several members. They've come in with different interests, different focus, and it's not unreasonable to expect that to change on the legislative side as well as the leadership within the administration. And you have shared this with the administration, with, as you say, staff members and members of Congress and the industry and some of the agencies have seen it, have been part of it. What happens next? How does it happen? Well, I think that's the key question, Tom. You know, what will happen with Scorecard 16, you know, the fifth congressional session? What I would say is clearly there's a focus on cyber. Cyber is going to be front and center. Again, we want to push the workforce category. We proposed eight categories. Do you need to do all eight? Not necessarily. You could do a handful of those, but I think it needs to be targeted on priority areas like workforce, like cyber. Legacy modernization is a big one that you could weave in the cloud adoption suggestions that we have. So we'll see what happens, but you know, over the next couple months as the next scorecard gets rolled out. Alan, any final thoughts? The Hill has a lot on their plate right now. Your station is reporting on some of those key issues, but as soon as we get those resolved, I think we'll get back to normal business and and see some progress on the report card. Alan Balutis is a former federal CIO, has been consulting and involved in the industry for a long time. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you. And Dave Pounder is executive director of the Policy Center at MITRE Corporation, former employee of GAO, have also looked at this stuff for decades. Great to have you in. Thanks, Tom. And, of course, you've been with us for decades, too, Tom. So <laughs> Yes, we're all getting gray together here. <laughs> but in the meantime, we'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Still to come after the Memorial Day hiatus, a roundup of what's next on Capitol Hill. But first, one reason the Postal Service has a long-term pension problem. This is the Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. Low-risk investments generally have low returns, and by law, the Postal Service must invest retiree assets in U.S. Treasury securities. The Office of Inspector General took a look at how much USPS would have had. Now, with a stock and bond mix, wow. We get more now from research specialist Joy Sanzone. And Ms. Sanzone, good to have you on. Great. Thanks for having me, Tom. And you looked at this, I guess, academically, because by statute, if that's how they have to invest their retirement funds, that's how they have to invest them. So what caused you to take a look here at what they would have had by now if they had a 60-40% stock bond mix? Sure. So this work builds on prior OIG work that has done similar work looking into retiree assets. Uh, Several years ago, the OIG did a paper uh, that looked forward, whereas the paper we're talking about today was a historical look 
we looked forward at the potential impact of investing funds today and what the impact would be in 20 years. And the impact, uh, a similar bottom line to this paper is that the impact would be significant for the Postal Service with even a modest amount of diversification. This was also a board request to look into this. Um, and we were interested to just see what would the Postal Service have had today had they invested as much as 50 years ago and compare that to their actual investment strategy. All right. So at the end of fiscal 2022, they had $298 billion in Correct. to pay out retirees. And mm-hmm. before we get to what they would have had, is that enough to cover their future liabilities? No. Uh, so their current balance is $298 billion, but their current liability for future retiree benefits is $394 billion. So almost $100 billion unfunded liability. Yeah, and so I guess their name is Legion in that respect. (laughs) We have this kind of time bomb across the government, across the country, really. And so if they had invested, at what point in time did you calculate from, and what would they have had today with a more diversified portfolio? Sure. So we looked back as much as 50 years. So we looked at CSRS, FERS, and the Postal Service Retiree Health Benefits Fund, which are the three retirement programs the Postal Service participates in. For CSRS, we look back to 1972, which is when the postal post office department became the Postal Service. For FERS, we look back to 1988, which was the year the fund started. And for the Health Benefits Fund, looked back to 2007, which is the year that fund started. So again, as much as 50 years. And what we found was that across those three retirement programs, the Postal Service could have had $1.2 trillion across those three funds if they had invested in a mix of 60% stocks and 40% bonds. So they would have had three times their liabilities at this point, and that money could then be available to, I don't know, sit there or hire more postal people? Or what could they do with that money if they had that much of a surplus? Yeah, there, there's a lot of potential financial implications for the Postal Service. Um, as you said, investing in its workforce is a potential use of that money. They could also invest in their processing and delivery network. They, there's also potential it could, in the future, minimize price increases. So the Postal Service must cover its costs through revenue, and obviously retirement expenses are a significant cost. So minimizing those expenses going forward could help minimize price increases as well. Right. And doing this exercise, though, is like pretending you won the lottery, imagining (laughs) what you would do if you had all that money. It's kind of academic because there's no gambit that I'm aware of in Congress to allow them to invest any differently than they have now, right? Correct. It's come up a couple of times, um, but it has not been included in any of the postal reform legislation. But is that the purpose of the research to kind of tell Congress, well, if you wanted to change it, here's what is likely to happen? Right. So uh, the goal of this paper was really to be informative. We, We didn't give any recommendations to the Postal Service, but we wanted this to be informative for the Postal Service, for Congress and any other postal stakeholders of, as you said earlier, the opportunity lost. Uh, and what the potential is going forward for investing retiree assets. We're speaking with Joy Sanzone. She's a research specialist with the Postal Service Office of Inspector General. And I'm looking at at the chart at some of the other investment funds that you mentioned or or funds that you mentioned, the FERS and also the the, uh, CSRS, of which there are still a few, you know, beneficiaries around. They'll be around Mm -hmm. for, we hope, quite a number of years. (laughs) And they also have pretty bad deficits. 
with respect to their future payouts. So, yes. So for CSRS, the deficit currently is about $41 billion. Uh, for FERS, it's about $32 billion. And for the Health Benefits Fund, about $24 billion in deficit. So total across the three is a deficit of about uh, $96 billion. Right. And that gets back to that liability that the Postal Service has versus what it has on hand. So what do mm-hmm. postal planners say about this? I mean, they must – I mean, this is – the sustainability of finances at the Postal Service has been a subject of some discussion now for probably 20 years. And there was a little bit of reform last year. But as the Postmaster General says, they're still not out of the woods because the network is changing. The revenue sources are changing. Everything else is changing also. So mm-hmm. how, how could postal planners use this information to change things, do you think? Yeah, well, again, this was meant to be an informative paper about what what is the potential of investing. Um, and it goes along with prior OIG work that looked to the future and projected what they could have had if they had invested. Um, the Postal Service would need to request, you know, congressional action would be required since this current investment strategy is dictated by law. So Congress would need to take action to allow the Postal Service to invest any differently. And looking at this from the standpoint of an individual postal employee, the FERS retirement that they'll have, the ones currently working or some of the old timers maybe you know, on retirement in their SERS program, the other component – well, let's talk about FERS. The mm-hmm. other component is Social Security, which they would have, and of course TSP. So really mm-hmm. for the average person, your findings reinforce the fact that the average investor, employee, needs to plow as much as they can, as aggressively as they feel comfortable into their TSP to compensate for the anemic postal general pension funds. Yeah, I think that's a great observation. Our paper doesn't get into the implications of, you know, in the future of, you know, currently these funds have an unfunded liability, um, but we don't get into anything about the, the benefits for individual employees. That's really outside the scope, but that's a, that's a great observation about the TSP. And you're an individual postal employee. What is your strategy for, I mean, you're still pretty young, judging from the picture I'm seeing on Zoom, but someday you'll retire. What's what? How do you approach it? <laughs> um, I'm not really sure how to answer that question. Um, <laughs> but you have a TSP account, I, I do, presume. I do. And so that's where you, you play around and see what you can get to maximize investments, fair? Yeah, that, that's that's my personal goal, yes. All right. Well, I, I think, you're, you're, you're again, your name is Legion here. And have you had any reaction to this study, to this paper, saying, hey, look, guys, if this were the case, that would be the outcome? Again, academic, but any response yet? Yeah, so this has actually come up with the Board of Governors at their recent meeting. And actually, in fact, it came up at the Postmaster General's testimony last week, which I think really underscores the importance of this issue. Uh, PMG DeJoy was asked a question about this, observing that there's currently $298 billion in the fund where they could have had the $1.2 trillion. Uh, and the, the PMG really underscored that uh, this would be incredibly significant for the Postal Service were it to happen. So I think that it came up then really underscores how big this might be. Joy Sanzone is a research specialist with the Postal Service Office of Inspector General. Thanks so much for joining me. Great. Thank you so much, Tom. And we'll post this interview along with a link to her report at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Have the Federal Drive delivered to your device. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Still to come, after the Memorial Day hiatus, the weirdness returns to Capitol Hill. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Tammen here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network.
Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Tammen here on Federal News Network. In theory, there's a debt ceiling deal between President Joe Biden and House Speaker Kevin McCarthy. But it's not law yet, and with days until the theoretical deadline, Congress has a lot of work to do. We get the outlook from Bloomberg Government Deputy News Director Lauren Duggan. And Lauren, what can we expect? Well, we'll see the first test for this bill today as the House Rules Committee meets to prepare it for floor action. And usually this is a perfunctory step, but this has been closely watched because um, one of the one of the hard things about this is to sell some of the flanks of both sides of the party. And in this case, there's three very conservative members who they have to sell this bill to and get it through that panel to get it to the floor. So test vote today there. And then tomorrow is supposed to be the key vote in the House where all the members will have a chance to weigh in. Then the tricky part comes because you also have to get this bill through the Senate. And as anyone who's watched the Senate knows, that can take a long time, depending on what any one member decides to do. So the the big date here, thanks to Janet Yellen's revision last week, is June 5. That's when she says her ability to manage things is going to become more difficult. So I think we'll see a lot between now and June 5 to try to get this thing passed both chambers onto the president's desk and into law. Yeah, really interesting. And what do we know about the provisions? I mean, the one thing is there is m- less money f- for the IRS than had been envisioned under the infrastructure bill. Right. So Democrats in their reconciliation law in 2022, which some people call the Inflation Reduction Act, a name that was kind of uh, questionable at the time. Um, But now there's $80 billion in that law. Republicans wanted to claw most of it away. The deal that was reached between the White House and House Republicans would claw about $20 billion of that back over the next two years and reallocate it to other things. You won't see that necessarily in the bill, but it's part of the trade-offs that have been made here under spending. So what the White House has been saying is, yes, we'll take $10 billion this year, $10 billion next year as we're doing appropriations. But, um, you know, there's still going to be a lot of money left. If we need to come back and go to Congress in a few years to get more to replenish what's being taken away, that might be an option. So, um, But the idea here is that funding, which would be used for staff and for enforcement and for even, you know, modernization efforts at the IRS, some of that money will be clawed back as part of this deal. And what else would be clawed back and what else would continue? I mean, how much do we know about the details of what they agreed to? We know a good amount. There's a 99-page bill, and then there's a bunch of documents that both parties um, have released in the day since the deal was reached. So we know that there's spending caps put in for the next two years, security and non-security caps that will restrain the growth in spending. Um, Some will say it freezes it and limits it to 1% into next year. Um, It also suspends the debt limit through January 1, 2025, which means that for the rest of this term of President Joe Biden and this Congress, the debt limit will be taken care of. It'll be up to the next Congress probably to come in and weigh this again. Um, There are also some changes to the National Environmental Policy Act, um, not as broad as the permitting reform that some Republicans wanted, but some changes that both sides have said could make a difference. Um, And then there's um, some clawing back of COVID funds that were put out there in the last few years, not spent, and they're going to claw those back and and use that as savings. So those are some of the big things that are there in addition to like the work requirements on SNAP that were controversial and something where the president is going to have to shore that up with his side of the aisle. In some ways, then, this is a really big test of the party's leadership because There's more centralism, for lack of a better word, in this than extreme left or extreme right. None of that, neither one of them got what they wanted. And so the question is, 
can it sail at this point? That is the big question. And, you know, Joe Biden called it a compromise over the weekend. That means both sides don't get what they want. I think the Republicans will say they got more out of the president than he ever wanted, given that his starting position was I'm not going to negotiate over raising or suspending the debt limit. So I think there's a lot of rhetoric that can be used to sell this to the two parties. I don't think anyone wanted to come out and say that they were too happy because, you know, they want to make it seem like um, it, it was a fair deal for both sides so that neither side pulls away some of their support. Um, so there's there's things in here that both parties will like and things that both parties won't like. We're speaking with Bloomberg Government Deputy News Director Lauren Duggan. And the House otherwise was not going to be in town this week, correct? But now they will temporarily? Yeah, they're coming in for two days. They'll do some financial services bills today while they wait for that Rules Committee meeting, get it out onto the floor, and then have their vote on Wednesday. Wednesday became the date because of the 72-hour rule. They wanted to have the text available for 72 hours before members were asked to vote on it. So that's why Wednesday was the day. And then presuming that's done, the House will go away and leave it to the Senate. This was supposed to be a weekend session for the Senate. They had last week off for their Memorial Day break. So they're going to do a judge vote tonight and then I think start plotting a course on this bill and how soon they can move it. All right. And then the Senate had other issues it was going to do this week. And will it still get to them, do you think? Yeah, it's unclear on the floor, but in the committees, you know, they're going to fire up again. And there's some some hearings there. They were going to look at the, I think, a deputy veterans affairs secretary, and they're going to look at other nominations and issues there. So the committees will get up and running. Um, but there's still a lot before the Senate, particularly on that nomination side. And one of the things we'll be watching as senators get back into town is what's next on the Julie Sue nomination for the Labor Department, because they're without a full time secretary that is in some ways preventing them from doing rulemaking. So um, they're there's un- there's questionable Democratic support on that one. And that's the thing. You know, there's only f- you know, 51 Democrats. They can only afford to lose a couple before that nomination is in trouble. And we'll be looking to see what that support looks like um, and if that's one that can move forward. Yes, because the support for that one is kind of not so widespread. I mean, there's even some Democrats, I think, that are unhappy or uneasy with Ms. Sue. Yeah, that's correct. And I think it's the questions around, are there enough Democrats or do Democrats have enough concerns that this nomination may not make it all the way? We've seen some judicial nominees pull back in recent weeks and withdraw their nominations. So that'll be a question around this one as well. Will there be enough to get it over the line? And what about modernizing Homeland Security's legacy IT? That's kind of close to home for our listeners That's coming up in the Senate. Yep, that's going to be a committee hearing in the Homeland Security Committee. Um, They often take a look at these things. They they look at more than just Homeland Security, but that is one of the parts of their remit. So we'll see a hearing this week on that. Um, Might be interesting to see what they're coming up with there. Um, Often they take bipartisan approaches to things in that committee. So um, we'll see if that's something that can be done. And obviously they'll be weighing that now with budget pressures as we, we will have this agreement going forward on what spending might look like for the next couple of years. Right. If they take away money from the IRS, it's not going to go to Homeland Security for its modernizing. Right. That that could. That, those are the trade-offs that you have to make under spending caps, right? So, right. pretty much. All right. So the Senate is in town. The House is in town for a couple of days. So everything really now is basically focused on that debt ceiling deal. Absolutely. And that will break loose. And I'm sure we'll talk in coming weeks about spending bills and defense authorization and all the things that this deal could help move forward that had sort of installed for the last couple of weeks as they didn't have this path forward. Lauren Duggan is Deputy News Director of Bloomberg Government. As always, thanks so much. Thank you. And we'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. For decades, chief human capital officers have worked with the Office of Personnel Management to shape workforce policies. 
A Chico Council forum held last fall helped shape OPM's recent guidance for the future of work. Now human capital officers are looking to further strengthen the role of the Chico Council. Federal News Network's Drew Friedman got details of the council's 2022 report to Congress and the outcomes of that fall forum from Chico Council Executive Director Margot Conrad. We spent a lot of time really digging into what does the future of the workforce really look like. And we were able to collaboratively come up with a vision of the federal workforce. And that is a workforce that's inclusive, agile, and engaged with the right skills to enable mission delivery. And from that, ultimately, OPM did put out a memo this spring in 2023 that's really laying a marker for what that future state is that we aspire to. And so it was a great example of you know, the Chico is coming together with OPM in partnership to really put together a vision for that future state. Another example of, I think, some really big success is around hiring. So with the bipartisan infrastructure law, there is a huge need for hiring talent across the federal government to be able to help implement these new infrastructure projects. And at OPM, we worked with seven different federal agencies and their Chicos very closely to make sure that we had some streamlined processes to help attract talent into these key roles to to implement the legislation. And I'll give you an example. We did a lot of multi-agency hiring actions. So, for example, we did one for HR talent, HR specialists. And by bringing agencies together, we were able to hire over 82 HR specialists across the federal government to help support agencies who then, in turn, were going to do more hiring to help support government at large to bring in this infrastructure talent. So these are some examples of where we were able to really work together collaboratively with Chico's. We've hired more than 5,000 people to support the bipartisan infrastructure law now through some of these new tools by partnering together, by doing um, pooled hiring. And so we've seen some great success. Just a little bit more about the future of work and that guidance from OPM. Can you share a little bit more about what the conversations looked like that went into forming that when you worked in tandem with the Chico Council? Like, How did that relationship look and how did that influence the final products? We've had some really great discussions as a full council, as I mentioned. We really grappled with this, talked about it. Are, is this the right vision? Does this resonate for all of us? And I think that was a really, really terrific discussion. But we are also having conversations in other forums. So, for example, we have a Future of the Workforce Working Group. We brought a lot of this content to that working group and also got additional feedback and perspective from the broader HR community. And then whenever we're developing guidance, policy guidance in this space, or, for example, we just issued new training for supervisors and managers, not just supervisors and managers, it's really free for all employees across government. This training is to really help employees really thrive in a hybrid work environment. These are the kinds of things that when we're developing the training or the policy guidance, we go to either the full Chico Council or their partners within the HR community and ask for their feedback to make sure that what we're developing is really responsive to their needs. In 2021, I believe it was that you stood up the executive steering committee within the Chico Council. What's the purpose of that committee and how do you see the future of the Chicos on that committee going forward? It really serves as the voice for the Chicos and the executive steering committee or ESC, as we call it, is also a sounding board for OPM in terms of the different types of policies we're putting out or different initiatives. We meet 
twice a month at a minimum, sometimes more frequently if things come up. And really this body is advising on policy, strategic direction. Again, they're providing the Chico perspective on behalf, behalf of their council, fellow council members. We often will pressure test things there. So we'll bring ideas you know, as we're creating them or thinking them through to the executive steering committee, get their feedback and input before we talk about it as a full council. And so I think that's been incredibly valuable. Also, we have time on the agenda where we hear whatever is on their minds, right? So it's a it's it's a two-way street here. It's OPM looking for feedback and guidance on things. And then often executive steering committee members will raise topics or issues that are important to them that they're hoping OPM will consider or, or they want more information on. And so it's just a really terrific forum for open dialogue and sharing and providing input on policy and also thinking about the agendas and things like that of what we're going to talk about at the full council meeting. Can you give an example either of how the ESC has changed the process for getting something through to OPM or something that maybe they've brought to OPM as an issue that you guys are going to start looking at going forward? One topic that I think we've talked quite a bit about is human capital data. That's a big topic right now and something where there's a lot of energy in the whole council. We've talked with the executive steering committee level as well as the full council, and we have a working group on it as well. We have been talking about this within the executive steering committee, thinking about how do we improve data quality? How do we make sure that there's better understanding of the data and that we're asking the right questions about what does the data actually tell us? And so that these are the kind of thoughtful conversations that I think improve the functioning of our own human capital. It's going to improve the conversations they're having with their leaders as well. The idea of taking feedback and turning it into you know, actionable items. That made me think of one other aspect of the Chico Council is the Chico Annual Survey. Can you talk a little bit more about what is the purpose of that survey and how are you using the results of that to, to turn into action for the council as well? This was a priority for us was to be able to ensure that we are getting real-time feedback once a year about how the council is delivering in terms of the staff, right? So how are we, as as the executive director and my team, how are we delivering for the council? And then also getting feedback for OPM as well on some of the work that we're doing in our customer service. And there are actually several metrics within the annual survey that are tied to OPM strategic plan. And that's also very important for us to be keeping track of because Chico's are one of our you know, biggest customers and, and most important partners. So this has been very helpful. Our our scores for the Chico Council itself and the administration of the council are very high, but it's something that's very important for me to keep an eye on all the time because customer service and ensuring that we're meeting their needs is, is critical. I think there are places where we can look at the tools, the resources we're developing. We can get insights from the survey as well. There's some open-ended questions. So it's just a very powerful tool to make sure that we are continuing to to learn and, and listen to the Chico community. I want to switch gears a little bit now to talk about some of the barriers or challenges that were outlined in the report too. From my understanding or how I read it, there's kind of three big areas. There's the digital workforce, there's early career, and then there's kind of this senior level workforce. There's there's a lot within there, but can you tell me maybe some of the things that you've been working on more recently or that you're thinking about to try to address some of those bigger challenges in government? 
Congress actually added this as a new requirement that we report annually around employment barriers, which we've defined as, as hiring barriers. And this is the first time that we've added this to the report per the requirement from Congress. We had, I think, a little bit of flexibility in terms of how we thought about it. So there was a specific request for us to talk about digital talent, but we also wanted to look at early career talent and senior talent as well, because we think it's very important to be looking at the whole human capital life cycle here. And what's interesting is when speaking with Chico's about this and getting their input, there's a lot of commonality across the board in terms of what some of these hiring challenges are that were identified. I think one is a concern around pay and making sure that agencies are able to, you know, be competitive with the private sector to compete for talent. I think another is the HR workforce itself and making sure that we have a strong and capable HR workforce that can actually have the capacity to do the recruitment and the and the hiring actions that needed because sometimes that can slow down the hiring process as well and I think we've talked a little bit about for example doing pooled hiring or sharing certificates and being able to hire HR talent in mass to help support the HR workforce more broadly across government is one way that we're starting to address that challenge. The hiring process can be lengthy at times. We're trying to address that in a number of ways through the president's management agenda and through um, hiring actions at OPM. So I think there's a lot underway to address these challenges. And I think it's interesting that you see so many commonalities kind of across the board, no matter whether it's entry level or, or senior level talent. And I know a lot of this was also brought up or at least addressed in the fiscal 2024 budget request as well. So, you know, as an example, part of the budget request talked about addressing pay compression for senior level roles. Are you working on progress in some of the areas that were addressed in the budget and that were also now brought up in the Chico Council report? The issue of pay compression was something that was raised by Chico's and and is mentioned in the report as well. And It's something that we talked about. We had a special session last year around SES reform and really diving more deeply into what are some of the opportunities for strengthening the SES across the board. And we really helped uh, inform and shape some of the work OPM is doing in this space. And and now you see in the FY24 budget, there is a specific mention around pay compression. So we look forward to And we sort of stand by ready to help and support as there are additional conversations going on around potential future legislative proposals. One other area I did want to touch on as well, you know, I think there is kind of an inherent connection between maybe what Chico's are looking at and what they want to focus on to improve for the future, as well as the uh, president's management agenda and what that's focusing on. So where do you see the connection between the first priority of the president's management agenda, strengthening and empowering the federal workforce, and maybe some of the issues or areas of focus that the Chico Council is looking at too? There is a lot of connectivity and it's very intentional between the president's management agenda and the work that we're doing on the Chico Council. And so to give you a couple of examples for the first strategy of the PMA, which is really focused on recruiting and hiring diverse talent that reflects America, we've now stood up a special working group of the Chico Council on recruitment and outreach. And there's also an affiliated community of practice that has over 200 members in it. And so this is a great opportunity for us to be really looking at what are some of the barriers to recruitment and outreach, 
How are we measuring the effectiveness of recruitment and outreach? We're really digging into a lot of these things. How can we build better strategic partnerships with diverse talent networks and sources? And so this is one of our newest working groups right now, but is very much closely aligned. I could say that all across the board because there's actually a working group around employee engagement that is very much focused on some of the objectives that we have in the PMA, one on future of the workforce. I'll mention one that I think is really important, which is the Elevating HR Working Group within the Chico Council. That working group is really connected to Strategy 4 of the PMA, which is really focused on how can we build the capacity and the capability of our workforce. And we are, within the Chico Council, really looking at, you know, how can we create a career pathing model for the HR workforce. We're working on a career growth platform so that there's going to be resources specifically for HR managers and leaders to be able to grow professionally and develop in their careers. So there's a lot of tangible work going on that is working to address things that Chico's have identified in the report and that's very much connected with the president's management agenda. I am also curious if there's any areas that the Chico Council has outlined that maybe the PMA needs to bring into focus more. Are there areas where you're looking to strengthen the the connection there? I don't know that there's any particular area right now where I feel that there's a gap. I think that we have a lot that we're already working on. And so this next year is really going to be about doubling down and, you know, crystallizing our priorities within the working groups that we have and making sure that we are able to deliver on, you know, the goals and objectives that we've set forward. What do you see as the future of the Chico Council over the next year? Where are you still hoping to focus and where are you hoping that Congress will see or take action on some of the things that were outlined in the report? We are at a place where we've got great leadership from Chico's all across government on these working groups. And we are in the process. And in some cases, we also have some cap goal funding, cross-agency priority goal funding under the PMA to support some projects. So we're just excited about being able to deliver on them. In terms of other things that are priorities for me, one is continuing, number one, to provide excellent customer service to the Chico community and really elevating their voice What's most important is just the partnership that we've built between the Chico Council and OPM career leaders. It's really terrific. And there are new Chico Council personnel policy office hours that we instituted that allow for these for early input on the development of policy that we're working on. I think that has proven to be very successful, whether it's on internship guidance or pathways programs refresh that's in the works. The insights that we're getting, like our policy is better because of the collaborative partnership that we have with the Chicos. Margot Conrad, Executive Director of the Chief Human Capital Officers Council, speaking with Federal News Network's Drew Friedman. Check out Drew's story at federalnewsnetwork.com. This is the Federal Drive with Tom Temin. For the latest updates, stay with federalnewsnetwork.com or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. I'm Tom Temin. 